0: Welcome to the first episode of the podcast Politics at King's. We are coming to you from the legendary Bush House, formerly home to the BBC. My name is Muhammad Zahir.
1: And uh, my name is Jack Lewis. Uh, we're both uh, master students here at King's College studying public policy.
0: Today we're going to be talking about an issue that is affecting over a million students in the United Kingdom. The university staff strikes. If you're interested in learning about why the strikes are happening or confused about where you stand and what actions you can take this is the podcast for you
1: we also will be talking about the democratic primaries uh, currently taking place in the united states Um, and we will make a few predictions about what may occur on super tuesday which as it stands is tomorrow Um, but again this will be coming out uh, after super tuesday so you may well be wrong but hopefully hopefully not um, but first we will begin with the strikes so and i want to ask mohammed a few questions because he recently wrote an article uh, in the independent about the strikes at the moment so mohammed what is your view on the strikes what do you have to say about them
0: so university staff across 74 universities in the uk are striking on one or a combination of issues around pensions working conditions increasing casualization a gender pay gap and unmanageable workloads. Casualization affects women and ethnic minorities the most, uh, making it unfeasible for them to work in the industry. Uh, I was speaking to a few lecturers today uh, who mentioned that if the industry continues to go in the direction it is, uh, that would mean that it would be mostly people from a wealthy background and privileged white males that will make up the majority of the academic staff, and that won't be reflective of society, even more than it already isn't.
1: I think just to quickly butt in briefly as well, I think it would just it would just be exacerbating an almost existing trend. I mean, I've been in higher education continuously for almost five years now, and the vast majority of my lecturers have been white men, um, basically. So. Yeah, I just thought, but again, the problem continues because it, it, it's almost already you have a situation where higher education is more accessible to people for whatever reason, whether it be racial or whether it be economic, that have more access to university. They're the ones already dominating the curriculum. So if you make higher education even less accessible for staff by reducing their paying conditions then, yeah, it's just going to exacerbate an existing problem.
0: It's, it's interesting because you can almost draw parallels with the journalism industry where uh, most people will find it difficult to survive uh, It's a demanding uh, career uh, and the financial benefits are few uh, comparatively. Hmm. And what's happened now is that you have uh, people who enter the industry because money isn't a factor to them, um, they're in, most, uh, most of them are independently wealthy and thus you have this almost bubble that they're living in um, that isn't reflective of the society that they're reporting on and that's why you see such a huge disparity between the opinions of the columnists and presenters on TV and the rest of the population. Hmm.
1: I think another another thing is interesting is um, both looking at this in relation to house prices and geographical location as well. So for example, uh, I'm quite an avid Guardian reader, maybe I'm a bit biased towards the Guardian perhaps, but I do notice that it has loads of articles in the lifestyle section about what's going on in London, a lot of its politics section is devoted to developments in London. And for me as a Londoner, I'm not complaining as such I also recognise that it's biased towards London because that's where the majority of the journalists have to live to work there, and London is very expensive. So it means that other parts of the country may not be as represented as London because they can't reporters from other parts of the country can't really afford to commute into London, move to London, um, and you can see that same kind of effect in all sorts of different spheres, whether it's education, whether it's politics. You know, the views of those who can access the profession will be the views that are the most dominant, I suppose.
0: It's also interesting to see that uh, views on the strikes vary across even university staff themselves. Uh, not everyone is striking on all of the issues or the same issues. It's, For example, King's is only striking on, th- on the issue of pensions. Uh, So, basically, what's happened here is that university staff are expected to put in tens of thousands of more pounds uh, into their pensions, while in retirement they're going to be worse off by hundreds of thousands of pounds, and it's completely understandable why people are concerned. Uh, I spoke to a few lecturers who are even skeptical that they'll get the pensions that that they're being promised in this scenario, much less the ideal scenario that they want Mm -hmm. to.
1: Can you also explain to us, Mohammed, a bit about uh, the different unions that are or are not involved um, in the strike?
0: So the strike is organised by the UCU, which is the University and College Union. Um, It is the largest trade union in further and higher education in the world. Uh, So most of the people that are striking are members of the UCU. If you have teachers that are still coming in to teach, it is uh, very likely that they're not members. Uh, but just to highlight that a lot of non-members of the UCU are also striking uh, in solidarity with their colleagues.
1: That's correct. Um, so it's not strictly limited to the UCU, but they are the ones initiating the, the strike. Um,
0: what has your experience with the strike been like? How has that affected you and the other students around you?
1: Uh, so for me, it's been quite varied, really. Um, so there was one teacher of mine who emailed me uh, to explain the reasons of the strike in full, um, talking about how it was really difficult decision uh, to go on strike, how it was a last resort to try and get the college back to the ta- negotiating table. And I actually really appreciated him telling me uh, about the reasons why he was going on strike, because it just helped me illuminate uh, the importance of the strike at the moment um, because I think when students are presented with a strike without any context there might be a tendency to become a bit resentful towards the teachers perhaps. I mean ov- obviously as as you know uh, Mohammed and as our, listen- our listeners would know anyway uh, most of the students here are paying um, a lot of money after they leave uh, for this education and they might get resentful that they're missing out on classes because of the strike. But I think that resentment is more likely to be pent up if you don't have any context. Um, So that's why I appreciated my teacher telling me in that situation. Um, Other teachers, um, some of them have come in, some haven't. But again, we don't know their union membership ourselves. So obviously we we can't sort of pass judgment and say, oh, you know, you're, you're obeying the UCU and you're not... So I think there are sometimes limits on uh, students' knowledge uh, of of the strike going on. I don't know if you've got anything else to add add to that.
0: I think uh, for a lot of the people listening in, what I'd like to say is uh, speaking to the lecturers, uh, what people need to realise is that many of them are striking without pay, so they're not being paid for the duration of the strike. And a lot of them are worried about paying the rent or meeting their expenses. After all, this is a relatively uh, underpaid industry in, to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so people aren't striking just for the heck of it, it, it they're striking as a last resort. And many of the lecturers are extremely apologetic about the disruption that is going to cause students. Uh, But I think I do agree that providing a better context to the students would help build up more goodwill.
1: I I think it's interesting as well. And this isn't an area of social history I know a huge amount about. But I remember reading a while ago that it was in the 1980s in the context of the uh, miners strike in '84 when the Thatcher government decided to cut off uh, strike pay uh, for a large number of professions. So if you go back into the 1970s, for example, it was comparatively easier uh, for large unions to go on strike because they knew their members would get some kind of minimum pay. I mean, it wouldn't be as much as what they'd get going into the job, but it was still something. Uh, Whereas I think since the 1980s, you've had it that when organizations do go on strike, uh, well, when unions go on strike rather, um, it's it's less safe, really, for their members because they won't be getting that kind of minimum pay. So I think I'd agree with you, uh, Mohammed, to say that actually it is quite a big decision to take, uh, particularly when you live in an expensive area uh, like a lot of London.
0: And one of the things that I would probably say is that education cannot be compared to regular goods and services. I think it's very important that everyone bears that in mind. Uh, it's important for people to take off their ideological blinkers and take a more nuanced approach to the issue. I've heard a lot of people on both sides have very, very charged rhetoric because people's futures are at stake. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's understandable. Uh, A lot of students have been paying a lot of money to come and study, they've made immense sacrifice and anything that involves huge sums of money will obviously be very contentious either way. But I've heard people say that students shouldn't cross a picket line, which I think is asking for a lot. Mm-hmm. It's asking for a lot, especially of international students who are paying an exorbitant sum of money. There's no other way to describe it. And what I would say to people is that everyone's needs to reassess their privilege and be more empathetic. For example, if you're a student who feels strongly that other students shouldn't cross a picket line, you might want to take into account the fact that uh, international students have had to go through a very, very strenuous uh, visa process. and. Uh, that might be affected by their attendance or lack thereof.
1: I, th- I think also, um, kind of adding on to that as well, you've got the difference between undergraduate degrees and postgraduate degrees as well. And obviously both degrees involve uh, a large kind of payment of tuition fees at some point and or a large student loan. But I think particularly for postgraduate uh, students, it's unlikely that their loans will actually cover the whole of their uh, fees. So, for example, in my case, I'm actually paying... Uh, part of my savings directly towards my uh, degree at the moment rather than sort of paying for it afterwards in the form of loan repayments. Um, So I think for those students, uh, they might feel, I don't know, maybe more of a sense of entitlement perhaps to kind of come in because they're paying for it more directly right now. So I think I'd agree that um, for a lot of students, it's not realistic to expect them to never sort of cross the picket line. Um, But I'd I'd just be curious to ask your views on this about... Are there other ways that students can support their lecturers as well as not going into class?
0: So views on this vary uh, among students. They vary amongst the lecturers themselves. uh, When I was speaking to lecturers, they said that it's even little things that students can do that make such a huge difference. They say that it's very disheartening for them when students pass them at the picket line and just avoid eye contact or just try and get through without acknowledging their existence or that the picket line is there. I think just a quick word of encouragement or a smile uh, can go a long way. The other way that they said that you can contribute is by writing emails and letters at the university uh, and telling them that they need to resolve this issue and write in solidarity of the teachers that are striking, um, mm-hmm. say that you agree that uh, uh, what is going on is in unjust. Mm-hmm. That that would make a huge difference. Uh, the other thing that I would advise students to do is to demand a tuition fee refund unless and until the universities are affected financially, there is no incentive for them to uh, resolve the issue. Uh, the teachers aren't being paid for the duration, and if students aren't going to ask for their money back, uh, the university isn't being affected, is
1: it? Yeah, fair enough. I think that's a a very good point. Um, I just want to kind of bring us back to another point that you mentioned earlier briefly, and that was about people's attitudes towards higher education, like whether they can view it as a commodity that could be brought or or sold, um, or something that is maybe a little bit more holistic and not as kind of market capitalist as some might view. I'm just wondering, uh, I I had one experience uh, when I was in my undergraduate degree. um, So I signed up for a course in American Studies uh, at UEA before I came to King's. Um, And I think it was late in my first year at UEA, uh, the lecturers decided to change uh, the amount of options available uh, from studying modules in the second year. So they essentially kind of cut out some module choices. And there was a meeting uh, that students were invited to attend about this. And I remember there were a lot of students having getting quite angry, uh, actually, at some of the lecturers and saying things like, um, you know, we, we are paying for this, you know, we're consumers, our education is something that we have bought into. As consumers, we demand these certain rights. Um, and I, I was sitting there thinking, well, I don't really view it in quite the same way, to be honest, because I understand that universities do fluctuate in terms of their capabilities. And obviously, if there's a class that is consistently being under attended years and years and years um, in the past, then I don't think they can viably continue with that. But I'd, I was just curious to um, get Mohammed's view on, on, on the student's argument in that particular case, whether that has any validity to
0: I think that the introduction of tuition fees and then raising them to such an exorbitant level mm. was always a slippery slope. That already started the commodification of education. Um, so if you've got anyone to blame, blame the government.
1: Yeah, fair, fair enough. I would say um, it'd be interesting to talk to my parents' generation on this actually, because they went to well, they went to university for free, really, and um, free higher education was case up until 1999, I think it was. I think that was when Blair introduced uh, tuition fees. Um, and then my granddad, he was the first in the family to go to university in the 60s, he went for free. I think it, it's interesting because in my family's particular case, um, so my granddad was from actually quite a working class uh, family. He grew up in Tottenham. Uh, his mum was, uh, he, she worked at a factory uh, putting cardboard boxes together and his dad uh, was a sort of a gas boiler fitter, Um, but he was able to actually become a nuclear physicist, earn quite a bit of money, and then send my dad to private school, um, partly because he was able to get a scholarship to cover his living expenses to go to King's, and he didn't have to pay any tuition fees at the time either. So I think if you go back to sort of the 50s and 60s, um, you can see that higher education was actually a massive tool uh, for social mobility and I think a lot of families in the UK now uh, can see that actually they will have a story in their in their background and they can see that uh, people have benefited from free university. Whereas now, I think it's harder to make that argument, I think, because so many people are put off university by the exorbitant fees you have to pay. And even if they are from, say, a poorer background and they do go to university, um, there is still that concern that they might not be able to pay off quick enough or be able to cover that level of debt so yeah
0: I mean I had wanted to attend King's since I was a teenager Um, I just chanced upon the Strand campus uh, during my first visit here to London and it's just I've never wanted to go to any other university apart from it but the uh, international student fees at the time I was I wasn't British to begin with uh, was just eye-watering and It just meant that there was no feasible way I would have been able to pay off the tuition fee. My parents sure couldn't pay for it. Uh, So what happened is that I had to find an alternative uh, source of education uh, and then bide my time saving up for over a decade before, and then um, I guess becoming a British citizen uh, and then being able to uh, uh, pay the reduced uh, home student fee. Uh, that allowed me to attend the university that I wanted to go to. Um, I don't think many students realize, especially home students realize how much of a struggle that is.
1: Mm, no, it is actually very illuminating to hear that and um, I remember when I went to um, East Anglia as an undergraduate, I did talk to some international students and they were telling me they were paying over double, sometimes up to three times as much as the domestic students. I think it's crazy that universities can get away with charging that much to be honest for international students. Do you, do you know what their logic is there? like Why they charge that much?
0: So the argument that you hear most of the time is that international students are paying a lot more than home students because home students tuition fees is subsidized by the government uh, which is obviously raised through um, taxing the population and mm-hmm. They say that it's not justified that international students get the same benefits that local citizens do. Whether that argument holds any merit? Um.
1: Well, I suppose again it's it's the kind of argument that probably sounds better in our quite isolationist age that we seem to be going through right now. What with Brexit and then Trump's trade wars, it kind of fits into this uh, idea that you know we have to protect our own. You know, charge the foreigners more. Sort of thing, um, which I don't think is very productive at all, really. I think in any area, whether it's education or the environment, you need by necessity to work across borders. But putting that to one side as well, I'm just wondering if we can segue a little bit into Bernie Sanders' policy of scrapping tuition fees in the United States across the board. Mohammed, what, what do you think of that policy proposal from Bernie? I
0: just I just think Bernie's policies are fantastic and exactly what we need in this day and age. Uh, as you know, Bernie is my favorite candidate for the Democratic nomination. It's He's always been the most consistent amongst all the candidates. He's never wavered from his progressive values. Uh, when people ask, what has he achieved? The Democratic Party is running on his platform. He was the one who fundamentally shifted the narrative around healthcare, around tuition fees, uh, around the $15 minimum wage, Mm -hmm. about progressive taxation and making giant corporations and billionaires pay their fair share. Mm -hmm. I mean, before Buttigieg sold his soul to the billionaire donors, as a teenager, he actually won the John F. Kennedy Profile in Courage essay contest Mm -hmm. for high school students. Mm for an essay titled Bernie Sanders, in which he wrote about his admiration of his now political rival.
1: I think it's also interesting, and you you can see this in both the Nevada presidential debate and also the South Carolina debate as well, uh, that it seems to be all the other candidates, including Buttigieg, um, are talking about Bernie's proposals, and they seem to Want to betray themselves as being kind of variations on Bernie? I mean, there was one question put to Buddha Judge, and they and I think the commentator said, "Do you agree with um, Sanders's view on universal healthcare?" And he said, "I agree on universal healthcare, but I don't want people not to have the option of having a private option too." Um, so I just find I think interesting because you can clearly see that Bernie's ideas are gaining a lot of traction, and the kind of the other candidates uh, almost having to kind of keep up with him and compare themselves to him to get anywhere. But I just want to go back to one point which I thought was interesting. You say Judge uh, sold his soul to the millionaire donors. I'm donors. Billionaire I'm just wondering what, what, what you mean by that.
0: It's basically there were a large number of billionaires supporting Pete Buttigieg and I think that the fact that he has no concrete policy issues or well-defined policy issues just meant that he was ripe for the billionaire donors and the democratic establishments to to sort of mold him into the candidate that they Mm. want him to be, rather than him being someone that's defined by his own policies as Sanders is. Mm.
1: I mean, from what I know of Buttigieg, the two kind of policy areas that I know he has talked about before, um, he wants to scrap uh, Trump's kind of transphobic um, so-called reforms in the US military, but I think probably all the other candidates would agree on that too. I think he's also opposed Sanders' view of free of charge higher education, uh, but he wants to sort of increase the number of grants to universities, make it more accessible. Uh, Those are the two kind of areas I'm familiar with in terms of his uh, policies. But I think it it would be interesting to talk. A lot
0: of them are just a continuation of Mm. uh, the policies that the Democratic Party has been sort of espousing for a very long time. Mm. There's nothing radical about them. I would argue that a more radical approach is what's needed. Um, I would argue that Trump is a uh, result of uninspiring Democratic policies.
1: And uh, and leadership, potentially? leadership, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting to know, and I think it, it might be um, it might be quite fruitful to talk about the role of kind of private finance and private donations in the caucuses. So obviously you have somebody like Michael Bloomberg, who is the ninth uh, richest man in the whole world um, competing for president. And he came in with a seemingly endless kind of ad budget, and he's actually the only primary candidate who isn't accepting uh, donations from anybody, which sounds quite heroic when you first hear that. But then that's in the context of him being the ninth richest man in the world, having several tens of billions of dollars behind him. And he's just bombarding state after state after state with massive television adverts, posters. And I read one uh, article, uh, and it was interviewing a young woman in Georgia who was going to vote in the Democratic primary in her state. Um, And she was saying, I don't like Bloomberg, I don't trust him but then the only campaign representative from any primary campaign to visit her local town was somebody from the Bloomberg campaign and she came and watched this person talk and it was it was an older lady from Washington DC you know this representative she was very personable she persuaded a lot of people Um, and then they interviewed uh, the same woman again after she'd gone and heard this representative talk and then she said okay well I might I might back Bloomberg now. He seems like an okay guy. And I just think it's fascinating, actually, that just because Bloomberg has so many resources and can get his message across so much easier, it does give him a huge advantage when it comes to the primaries. And I'm just wondering, Mohammed, if you think that that level of resources that Bloomberg has, do you think it will give much of a challenge to Bernie Sanders?
0: I... I it definitely will Um, but then I I think it also kind of underlines Bernie's message that uh, billionaires should not exist do you really want people with that kind of disproportionate influence over politics uh, to actually go from influencing uh, politicians from the sidelines to now actually controlling the state Um, it's, it's a scary thought Mm-hmm. but you already have that with uh, Donald Trump and you can see how well that's going.
1: Yeah, and it is, there's also precedent as well for very rich um, billionaires or millionaires to kind of come in to the uh, presidential elections or primaries. I mean, I think you go back to 1996 and you had Bob Dole um, coming in, uh, you know, as an independent, um, and then also you had Mitt Romney in 2012. He, he, was, a, he was a millionaire, possibly a billionaire, I believe, uh, when he got the Republican nomination. But again, it, he was helped by the fact that he was able to spend so much money on advertising and persuading people. So I think, yeah, definitely private finance does have a big role in primaries and elections.
0: There is a limit to the level of uh, how much they can affect the primaries, though, uh, as was seen by the uh, complete and utter annihilation of Bloomberg in the, fir- in the first primary debate he took part in uh, by Elizabeth Warren, who just just completely wiped the floor with him. Mm. And then the conversation that Bloomberg tried to sort of pivot towards is that uh, he, he, he is running for president. He's not trying to win um, debates.
1: Mm-hmm. I think, again, but you almost have to win the debates, really, to get anywhere in the primaries, let alone the presidential election. Because I think, and it's the same in this country, really, most people engage with politics on a very kind of low level basis in terms of time. You know, they they have their jobs, their families, what have you. And what they will see is, you know, the headlines from a debate or they might watch a YouTube clip or something. So you really have to perform in these debates to get anywhere, I'd say.
0: I think Um, uh, America also has this unique uh, factor of the American dream where it's, I think, that billionaires are looked upon favorably because everyone dreams about becoming one. I'm, I'm not sure who said this but uh, they said that everyone, every American thinks that they're just a uh, temporarily inconvenienced uh, millionaire in the making.
1: That's very interesting actually and I think if you and you can make a probably broader argument about this and also in relation to class because in, in the UK uh, you have an established aristocracy and a very entrenched class system Um, So people in this country like Jacob Rees-Mogg, like David Cameron, uh, they'll always be looked upon by a lot of people uh, with resentment because they they have inherited privilege going back generations and generations and nobody in their family essentially earned it as such, apart from maybe somebody who was able to conquer a country in the Middle Ages perhaps, Um, whereas in the US you never had that aristocratic system and I mean yeah families were able to transfer wealth down the generations but there was I think at least this perception that okay we don't have an entrenched class system here in the US and anybody can make it and reform society perhaps
0: Um, It's interesting you mention the UK and the class system I would argue though that it is that sort of like deference towards wealthy aristocrats that allow them to become so successful with such little talent.
1: But I think there's also a difference between deference and likability, I think, sometimes. Like, say, for example, yeah, you might treat um, somebody of an aristocratic background with deference or even respect in a social situation, but then um, behind their backs you might be resentful whether publicly or privately. I think it, it, there's, an, and I'm just slight, slightly tangential, but I remember reading about John Burko, for example, in the House of Commons. Now John Burko, uh, he grew up in Edgware from a, kind of a middle-class kind of Jewish family. He didn't have the same level of privilege as David Cameron, and I remember John Burko actually harboured quite a few resentments uh, towards David Cameron. He just saw him as an overprivileged toff uh, who was just kind of running the country as some kind of hobby horse. Um, and I mean, I'd mean, i have to watch some of the altercations between Burko and Cameron in the Commons to actually see this being played out. But I do think it is interesting how these kind of resentments around class can actually influence people's views of certain political figures.
0: Um, uh, moving back to the U.S. Prim- uh, Democratic primaries, uh, what do you think about Pete Buttigieg dropping out?
1: I think it, well. I think it, it's a tactical move on the part of the more centrist Democrats. I would say, considering that the policy platforms of Biden and Buttigieg are much closer than Biden and Sanders, so it makes sense a Buttigieg Judge to kind of drop out uh, in favor of Biden. I think though, it's interesting with Biden. Sorry, with Buttigieg in the context of his sexuality and also his youthfulness as well. And you think about his CV, so he was in the military uh, for quite a while and serving in Afghanistan and Iraq. He was mayor of South Bend, Indiana, for eight years. And I think he was an analyst at Goldman Sachs, I believe. He was a Rhodes Scholar, went to Oxford. So if you look at his CV, it's just glittering, really, in comparison to somebody like Donald Trump, who inherited his wealth, spent a lot of time as a judge on Celebrity Apprentice, making lots of dodgy investments outside of that as well. And I think to an extent, if your sexuality is something other than straight and you are somehow kind of um, deemed less normal in the public eye, you are almost hold to a higher standard, I think, in a way. Like you think about somebody like Bloomberg or Trump, because they are, you know, they're, they're straight and they have a lot more money, they, they can enter these things with maybe a bit less um, respectability behind them. Whereas somebody, with Buddha judge, they're held such a high level of scrutiny just because of their background I think it's quite impressive that he got as far as he did in that context to be honest um, and whether you agree with his particular policy platform or not I think you know he did face a challenge um,
0: I think there was uh, a minor skirmish on this topic with uh, Kamala Harris uh, in which uh, Buttigieg did say that or tried to imply in very carefully measured words that he might not know what racial discrimination feels like, but he knows what discrimination feels like nonetheless because of his sexuality.
1: I think there's an argument to be said, and I think it's also worth bearing in mind that there is intersectionality as well. So of course, whilst people of the LGBT community do certainly experience discrimination, there are also different types of discrimination facing women, facing LGBT women compared to LGBT men, and then also discrimination based on racial lines as well. And I think I remember there was um, Amy Klobuchar actually brought this point up slightly in the Nevada caucus debate when she seemed to imply that um, Buttigieg kind of had an easier time of it because he was a man um, and because and he was younger and he was able to get where he was at a younger age because of his gender. But then you can also say, well, he's had to hold himself up to a higher standard because of his sexuality. So I think, you know, the, these issues are never going to be completely um, straightforward, I suppose. But I think it is it is worth commenting on the fact that all the front-runners run, are very elderly white men. Um,
0: uh, which I think, I think uh, speaking of Amy Klobuchar, uh, rumour has it that the Biden campaign has allegedly asked her to s- stick around until Super Tuesday to blunt uh, uh, Bernie Sanders' impact in her home state. Mm-hmm. And they're saying that Warren is also uh, trying to blunt Bernie Sanders' impact. Uh, surge, uh, what do you make of that?
1: I think that's a very interesting argument because often I hear it the other way around and uh, the centrists being concerned that um, you know, Klobuchar sticking around is going to detract votes from Biden, weakening, weakening him against Sanders. So I think that kind of argument, I think you could take it either way, really. Mm. Um, although to be honest, i probably say it's more likely that Klobuchar and Warren would take votes from Biden than Sanders, in all honesty. Um, even in
0: their home state.
1: Uh, oh, good question. Um, yeah, potentially. Yeah. Um, it's interesting the home state argument though, because I think I, I think Klobuchar is set to win Minnesota. Yeah, uh, her home well,
0: Bernie's very close behind. But, mm-hmm. And uh, you could argue that if Klobuchar drops, uh, uh, Bernie would surge even further.
1: Mm-hmm. Potentially, yeah. Although Warren doesn't seem to be gaining that much traction in Massachusetts, funnily enough, which is her her home area. I just want to mention another topic, speaking of different states uh, and their demographics, I suppose. Um, so, I remember in, in the news when Bernie Sanders won, or won, sorry, uh, Nevada, um, a lot of commentators thought it was very significant because Nevada has a very mixed uh, population, a high number of African Americans, a high number of uh, Chicano Americans as well, um, so, and also a growing number of Asian Americans, so it's quite a diverse state compared to somewhere like Iowa and New Hampshire. And perhaps Nevada is quite reflective of the primary voting base for a lot of Democratic voters. So I think the fact that, Biden, sorry, that Sanders won Nevada is perhaps a bit of a portent for what might happen uh, tomorrow on Super Tuesday, perhaps. But again, you've also had Biden winning South Carolina, uh, which occurred two days ago. Um, so maybe that'll give his campaign a boost.
0: South Carolina, of course, is a more conservative state. And uh, many of the African-American voters that seem to favor Biden, uh, even that is sort of broken down by age. I read that older African-American voters are more likely to vote for Biden, whereas uh, Sanders holds a lead in younger African-American voters. Yes, yes. Uh
1: that is interesting, and I think also of South Carolina. You have to recognise. I think I think it was Jim uh, Clyburn, who's yes, the senator. Yes, he had a huge impact. Yeah, so he he came out and endorsed uh, Biden, and he's very popular um, in his home state of South Carolina. So that potentially. Gave Biden quite a few votes, I imagine. Uh, Biden's
0: uh, constant hammering home of the fact that he's Barack Obama's friend uh, certainly did not do him any disservice. I think also
1: I'll just be curious, Mohammed, to uh, hear your views about um, this argument that Biden is perpetuating at the moment, that he is a true Democrat through and through and that somebody like Sanders, because he's sat as an independent uh, senator for such a long time, is somehow less loyal to the Democrat camp and is somehow less of a Democrat. I'm just wondering what you'd make of that argument. So
0: I've I've had this discussion with quite a few Democrats who are opposed to Bernie, saying that uh, they see it as just opportunistic of him to be running on the Democratic platform. I'd say that. My argument would be that the Democratic platform at the moment, as we discussed earlier, mm-hmm. is Bernie Sanders' platform. Literally everyone is comparing themselves to what Bernie Sanders' policy is. He's the one that dictating uh, where the Democratic Party is standing at the moment. So the Democratic Party's ideology is the Bernie Sanders' ideology, for better or worse, at the moment. And like future stars like AOC or Ilhan Umar or Rashida Tlaib and so many others... Uh, I just see that Sanders has had such a integral impact in the direction of the Democratic Party that I don't think this argument holds any merit. No. I'd also like to say to people who say that Bernie Sanders should have run as an independent, I'd say do you really want Bernie Sanders to split off the vote do you like do you not think that Bernie Sanders running as a democrat is actually the best possible outcome because mm-hmm. if Bernie Sanders ran as an independent in my opinion he would beat the democratic nominee as as far as votes are concerned i think they would still mm-hmm. lose to trump because obviously the the left wing at the center vote the non-republican vote mm-hmm. is now split between the Democrats and Sanders as an independent mm. but do you? I personally believe that uh, Sanders would beat the Democratic nominee.
1: I think they're quite right there but again you'd have this issue if he did run as an independent of splitting the more left leaning vote and you see that in this country so often at elections because you have the Conservatives on one side uh, and some would say, okay, but you also got the Brexit Party, but they're very, they were quite a minor force. So on one side you've got a united front for the right in the form of the Conservatives, and then on the left, okay, the main party is Labour, but then you have the Lib Dems who usually position themselves on the left, but they can be a bit chameleon-like sometimes. Um, but then you've also got the Greens who are on the left and the SNP who are arguably on the left, certainly in terms of their economic policy. So you have this situation in the UK where. More than often, the right wing party will gain power because they have a more united voting base. And I think America is interesting because, at least every time you have an, a presidential election, there isn't this split on one side. So I think it's more of an equal chance between left or right. And I say left or right with some skepticism, of course, because I think in American politics, um, the American view of what is left is different to what it is in the UK and other European countries. But still, in an American sense, you've got more united left, more united right, and perhaps the result of presidential elections is more volatile as a result.
0: I mean, you have a lot of Democrats still angry at Jill Stein for Hillary's loss. Imagine what the conversation would be like if Bernie Sanders ran as an independent. Mm,
1: exactly. Um, there are relatively few examples of independents doing particularly well in political history. I mean, I'm thinking, I know he's a rightly discredited Now, because of his comments, but you do have um, Ken Livingstone in two thousand, you know, winning the mayoralty uh, against Frank Dobson, who was at Labour. But then Ken Livingstone was an independent, and he still won, regardless. Um, But apart from that, I can't think of that many examples of independence.
0: I think Ken Livingstone is an outlier because of his relationship with the fabric of London. Um, i think uh, ken livingston's relationship with london and londoners is uh, is not something that is emulated across the political spectrum mm. that often
1: because again um, just for just for uh, people's information ken livingston he was in charge of the glc greater london council back in the uh, 1980s, and funnily enough, me and Mohammed actually studied this in one of our classes last term. But I just want to segue into something else uh, before we before we finish off, and that is the question of, is there a particular democratic candidate that is be- better for British interests? Um, so I know a lot of people in the UK may be wondering, oh, OK, well, there's all this debate in the States, but will it affect me in any way? Uh, would you say, Mohammed there's a particular candidate in, in American...
0: Uh, I would say that the only way that the NHS is going to be protected is if Bernie Sanders wins uh, because otherwise there is a very huge risk of uh, America wanting uh, a piece of the healthcare system in the UK uh, as part of any future negotiations.
1: And just on that topic as well I remember go back to December last year when we had the general elections in this country and Jeremy Corbyn was holding up um, that, that document uh, talking about the uh, U.S. UK trade negotiations in in relation to the NHS, um, I'm just wondering if, uh, what what uh, can you remind us what those documents mentioned exactly?
0: So the documents that Corbyn was waving around, uh, they basically, according to Labour, uh, revealed that despite the UK government's denials, uh, the U.S. was demanding that the NHS be on the table for any post-Brexit deal, and. Uh, uh, according to Corbyn, the U.S. would not be selling its medicines for less money to the U.K. Mm-hmm. It could only mean that prices would go up.
1: Yeah. So I think it's just useful to consider that in the context of the democratic primaries going on at the moment. And that actually, while it does look like on the surface that this is purely American concern, actually we do live in a very interconnected world, uh, particularly now when we have uh, Boris Johnson's government trying to look for external trade deals outside of the EU. Um, So if Sanders does uh, get into office uh, in November, then it may well affect the uh, outcome of kind of US trade uh, agreements with the UK and the impact it has on the NHS. Um, Just to sort of wrap up, I'm just wondering, Mohammed, if you have any particular predictions for what's gonna be happening tomorrow on Super Tuesday? So I'm
0: going to limit the predictions to uh, who I think will eventually be the front runners. It will be between it will be a race between Biden and Bernie Sanders. Biden constantly lying about his role in the civil rights movement, and the much publicized recent fabrication of being arrested after meeting Nelson Mandela in South Africa, would have been disqualifying for any other candidate. But despite that, I think he's going to do well in North Carolina, Virginia tennessee alabama oklahoma texas and american samoa american samoa and texas will be a toss-up between bernie and him although i hope that bernie has an edge bernie is likely to do well uh in california texas virginia minnesota utah maine vermont of course and Americans, it'll be interesting.
1: Mm. Can, I, can I just ask you a quick question about what, why did you choose those uh, particular states for Biden to be successful in?
0: Those um, are uh, more conservative states, mm-hmm. and um, I think that the uh, I think the demographic makeup of those states also would go in his favor.
1: Mm, okay, and um, and then why why those particular states for Sanders that you chose? Uh, A. Sanders is polling very well there, uh, especially in California. Um, In
0: Vermont, I don't think anyone's going to beat him. I think he'll probably just like... If he could take all the delegates, I think he's going to take all the delegates. Uh, But these states are comparatively more progressive, and they have a more diverse demographic makeup, uh, more Latino presence in some of them, uh, more younger voters in some of them. It's... uh, it kind of meshes well with uh bernie sanders supporters Hmm. i think
1: i'd agree with you on that analysis i'd say actually um one thing i would add to that though is that i think having watched both the uh nevada and the south carolina uh debates i do think that biden's debate performance is improving somewhat i think uh, he seemed he he seemed to be a bit more dynamic in the south carolina uh, debate and i think in South Carolina versus the Nevada debate, I think Bernie had a bit less airtime. I think in t- in the South Carolina debate, um, and that might affect his polling and voter behaviour and so on. Uh, also, there's also the role of uh, Bloomberg's advertising spree to consider as well. But I think, yeah. But ha- having said that, I think your analysis analysis is quite apt. I would say, although I think maybe the South Carolina debate might give Biden something of a boost, perhaps.
0: I think mm. this was the first primary he'd won in all his years of trying to become the Democratic nominee. Mm. Uh, that in itself is also a very huge milestone, I'd mm. say, and a very surprising one. Mm.
1: And, and, and another question as well. I'm just wondering, do you think uh, after the results come in for tomorrow, uh, there will be a clear front runner? Do you think Bernie will clearly overtake Biden? Uh,
0: I think there's a difference between what I'm hoping will happen and what I think is more likely going to happen. Obviously, I hope Bernie Sanders becomes a clear frontrunner. But I think what we're going to see happen, especially if Elizabeth Warren continues to stay in the race and continues to attack Sanders as she has been more pointedly recently, um, I think you might head for a brokered convention okay. with no clear frontrunner.
1: That is interesting to see. And again, uh, when we next enter the recording studio, we will know what the results are. So we will perhaps maybe take a few minutes uh, to analyse that. Uh, I think we'll be ending off there. So thank you for listening to our podcast, uh, Politics at Kings.
0: Join us next time as we discuss the legacy of Boris Johnson as Mayor of London and housing in general. Signing off from the legendary Bush House, it's Mohammed Zahir and Jack Lewis.